I'm Yingli, one of the producers of the Color Green podcast, and it is my great pleasure and privilege to be in conversation with Baroness Lola Young today in this special episode to tell us more about the podcast. Hi, yeah. We're in central London mm-hmm. right now in one of its many green spaces. Lola, can you tell us a bit more about the podcast? Right. Well, you know, for some years now, we've been having this discussion, we being a number of us, but particularly colleagues from Julie's Bicycle, about what we can do about diversifying the environmental movement, or at least, you know, looking at what appears to be a very kind of white, middle-class movement and trying to work out how we can be much more um, inclusive so after talking about this for some time, we thought, well, what's the best way of getting some of these ideas across to a wide range of people? And we thought, yeah, podcasts, that's a good idea because they're growing in popularity. They're easy to listen to. You've got your phone, you've got your um, tablet computers, what have you. And, and it's really um, a good way, I think, of reaching a, a potentially quite a large audience to discuss some of these ideas and initiatives that people have been talking to me about. And why is it so important to be talking about these things? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that I've worked a long time on issues of equalities, diversity, discrimination, and so on and so forth, across a wide number of sectors, but principally in arts and culture. And to me, we've made a little bit of headway in those areas, but not quite enough. So it's very interesting to see what this intersection between arts, creativity, and cultural activity and the environmental injustices that are continually perpetuated, how do we make that kind of interface work for a wider range of people? So it it, it feels like absolutely critical, particularly at this moment where I think more and more people are beginning to understand just what a terrible um, set of circumstances we've created for ourselves and that we need to act collectively and collaboratively to try and mitigate the worst aspects of the environmental disaster. You know, you don't want to sound too apocalyptic, but actually it is apocalyptic. So what is it that we're going to do about it? And I think unless we can find ways of working in a really collaborative way, we're certainly not going to be able to address this. And so just going deeper into the environmental injustices that you're talking about. So earlier today, we took a walk through Broomsfield Park, which is one of your local parks. Yes, it's lovely in, in North London. And one of the reasons... I like it, although this may sound a bit odd. To get there, I have to cross the North Circular Road, which is frankly disgusting. It's absolutely appalling in terms of the amount of pollution. And I I, I even feel sometimes when I'm just standing waiting for the lights to turn green for pedestrians, which it hardly ever seems to because we're not prioritised, I feel I can almost chew the atmosphere and I can certainly feel the taste of it in my mouth. And in fact, I can't even continue listening, listening to podcasts and audio books because I can't hear anything because of the rumble of traffic. The ground is literally shaking. But once I'm across there, I've got a five or ten minute walk into the park, which is a little oasis of greenery, 
lovely trees and grass, community cafe, even a conservatory and a big old house which is falling apart which they're trying to renovate and a garden of remembrance. So even though, as I say, it's kind of in the midst of this appalling traffic, there is a sense that you can find a moment of calm and a moment of greenery that is absolutely essential for people, especially those who live in cities. So, you know, I, I, I just think that London is really quite well off in terms of parks, especially compared with some other big cities. But I'm not sure that we appreciate them quite enough. So I try to make an effort to get out to these places. It's a particularly uh, poignant place for me because I, I remember my son when he was about three and he's in his 30s now, gambling around, frolicking around like a little lamb with the rest of his, his school uh, friends on a trip from school. And it was really important for them to get out the area and have that green space. And also because the last words um, a, f- a friend uh, said to me on the telephone just before, shortly before she died of um, breast cancer. So it's particularly resonant with memories and feelings and it's so helpful to be able to walk around and not be interrupted by noise and traffic and just to think things through in that green space so yes of course those huge open spaces some of which we visited like um, Walthamstow Wetlands or Hampstead Heath or One Tree Hill they're great and fantastic but also there are these little plots of land that that really help people to make sense of where they are and just have a quiet time. That's amazing. And actually, going back to what you were saying about memory, what do you think is the difference in the way green spaces and nature can hold memory in a way that's different from the built environment and buildings? That's a really interesting question, actually, because I hadn't sort of thought about it in those terms. Maybe it's partly because uh, recently I've been thinking about trees a lot because I started to read a book which is about the hidden life of trees. So I've been concentrating quite a lot on trees. And actually, I went to see this amazing 2,000-year-old tree, which is in London, and it's the oldest tree in London. But maybe it's because... I think buildings are alive in one sense, but obviously trees and plants and vegetation is alive in a very real sense. And what they do is I think there is a a feeling that somehow there is something residing in those living things. And having read a bit about trees and the ways in which they kind of communicate with each other it's fascinating so over the course of recording this podcast we've had the great joy of visiting very many green spaces chosen by our guests and how have these conversations actually changed or shaped your perspective on people of colour and the environmental movement well it has been a fascinating experience and I've been to places that I didn't know existed in London so that's been a great learning experience for me and as I say it's 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 helped me to appreciate much more the green spaces that we have in London even though it's a very densely populated city but perhaps even more importantly than that has been learning from the people that are engaged in environmental activism but in a different way to what is maybe considered the norm in conventional environmental uh, movements. So there are, and that's not to say that, that, that 
everybody that we've spoken to has a very different perspective on this and again that's been part of what has been so fascinating so somebody might have a more academic approach than somebody else somebody else it very much comes from things that happened to them in their childhood or when they were with their families for, for nearly everybody, it's tied up with a wider sense of politics. And I think that is something that the um, more mainstream environmental movements can learn from. The way in which um, the personal is political, the political is personal, environmentalism is personal and political. And for those people of color, uh, for people from diaspora communities, there's a real sense of how it's international, not just in an academic way of saying, oh, yes, plastic on the beaches and Accra is, is, is international. But there's a very real sense of if you've got a sense of identity based on your heritage, your cultural or national heritage, even though you might be fully integrated into British society, there's still that sense that there's somewhere else that you've come from, from way back. So how do you connect with that? And once you start to think about that, you're very much aware of the impact of what the um, global north has been practicing over the years with regard to plastics and poisoning and toxicity in, in the atmosphere and all the rest of it and how that impacts on everybody around the world in an unequal way and even within Britain one might say the inequality and injustice plays itself out in very different ways and particularly around the kind of wealth you have it's about what kind of choices you can make in the food that you by what um, what determines what you choose to eat is very much shaped by how much money you have to spend on food and that isn't always uh, the best food either for your personal and family health or uh, for the environment other ways for example there's a school near me where um, it's based on a traffic roundabout essentially and what you've got is a constant stream of buses cars taxis lorries food delivery vans running around there at the same time as the kids are running around and that's what they're breathing in and I think we might see more um, uh, cases where families try and um, sue uh, governments and local authorities for not protecting their children more, um, uh, more assiduously. But the point I'm trying to make here is that this doesn't happen necessarily in the same way to the same extent in more middle-class areas, and that is the point. So I think there's a lot of people of colour who can make these connections and say that their individual health, the health of their family and their communities is absolutely directly connected to the health of the environment. So a key thing that I've learned from this series of wonderful conversations is that environmental activism comes in many different shapes, forms, ideas and conversations. And I think for me, you know, if we learn anything from this for the what might be seen as the mainstream environmental movement is for people involved in that to think through what is it that they're trying to do and how do they really want to engage with people of colour in a way that isn't patronising, in a way that recognises that there are all different ways to connect with nature. Everybody connects with nature in one way or another through food at a very basic level. So how can that 
mutual, absolutely essential activity be harnessed into something that creates a much more collaborative, much more collective movement that will have some real uh, bites and real teeth in terms of making interventions on policy and so on and so forth. As somebody who's involved in legislation, we have to have people clamour for change otherwise pe things won't change because politicians tend not to change things unless they feel that there's a real incentive to do so so elola every episode we've had our guest plant a seed while talking about the hopes for the future and you have a seed too here as well what i do got? i've got some what i think are heritage seeds they're red brussels sprout seeds and they were given to me a couple of years ago so i'm hoping they're still viable but this has been one of the most interesting bits also of the conversations that i've had because i've been interested to see what seeds people have selected so i'm just now sprinkling these seeds and i hope that sometime later in this year i will have some delicious red brussels sprouts mm. so for the future well i'm hoping we've got a future for one thing and that we will be able to at least say to our children our children's children this is what we've tried to do for the future i actually feel quite positive i have hesitate to say optimistic because i think that kind of can be a bit sort of Pollyanna-ish. What I'm thinking is that there are enough people, or that there will be enough people, particularly young people, but also working across generations, to say enough is enough, not only on environmental injustice. This is absolutely inextricably connected to other forms of social injustice, such as racism, misogyny, homophobia, Islamophobia. All of those things are connected. And if we can get people to make those connections and to understand that the only way we can challenge the orthodoxies that have produced our current situation is to work together, then that, for me, is a really positive way forward. Hopefully you'll be sprouting very soon. Amazing. Thank you, Lola. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Colour Green. Check out the show notes for important links to Julie's bicycle and our guests' work. If you like the series, please like or rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. To stay updated about our work in arts, sustainability and climate justice, follow us on Twitter at Julie's Bicycle.